I don't take uh, pictures of all the furniture that I crush, but I do have some. Uh, at uh, 6'2", I occasionally need something to step a little higher uh, on a particular job, and that was the case uh, here on this uh, little stepladder that my size 13 foot uh, sort of crushed to the ground, and uh, it, it wasn't even my little step stool that I crushed. I felt badly about that. I was just on one of these yesterday and uh, didn't crush that one, so I feel better about myself. Uh, but uh, uh, this one, I think the weight limit was like 150, and I'm two or maybe three pounds heavier than that, and it just didn't, uh, didn't manage to stand up under the stress. But um, I, I'm sure that you can identify with that sense of crush, uh, the crumpling that can go on in life, whatever those circumstances might be, the rockiness of a relationship, the difficulty with finances, bad test results, scary situations that put that crushing pressure, that stress into your life. Uh, And uh, certainly, uh, stress, particularly long-term stress, not properly dealt with, is destructive. About 10 years ago, Uh, Researchers confirmed a link between emotional stress and illness. Uh, The Garvin Institute uh, reported uh, about this discovery of a hormone called neopeptide Y that's created when uh, we're under emotional stress. And this hormone undermines our ability to fight disease. Um, The report said that during periods of stress, NPY is released into the bloodstream where it inhibits the cells in the immune system. It is a reality that stress makes you sick. So um, that reality is how you handle pressure. Stress is a health issue, and it certainly also is a spiritual issue. In this series called Pressure, uh, we've been looking at incidents in the life of Saul, king of Israel, and his failure to handle stress, pressure, appropriately. The first week it was about his response of panic. The second week was paralysis. And now we come to this third pressure-packed scene in his life that begins with a funeral. We're in 1 Samuel, and this is chapter 28 that says in verse 3, Now Samuel died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. So we have Samuel dying. He's the spiritual, the judicial leader of Israel. And now he's gone. Uh, As a prophet, uh, he was the judge as well. He communicated the word of God to the leadership of Israel, King Saul, providing guidance for Saul. But now Samuel is gone. So where's Saul going to get the direction that he needs? Now we get a little hint about the trouble to come in this verse uh, because it mentions how the psychics and spiritualists had been expelled from the land. Uh, The word necromancer uh, refers to somebody who communicates with the dead and that's something that God forbade and uh, uh, Saul has them kicked out of the land. But now we find him in, in another very difficult situation. Uh, He needs guidance. The difficult situation is that the Philistines, that big bully on the block, is threatening Israel once again. And Saul watches as the uh, enemy soldiers gather. And by the end of the week, the whole valley is filled with Philistine troops. And they vastly outnumber Israel. So Saul is terrified. A spoiler alert, um, this stress ends up destroying Saul. So how can we avoid self-destructive pressure? Uh, Whether that threat is 
physical, emotional, relational, or spiritual, how should we deal with it? Well, we need to learn from Saul's negative example. So watch uh, what Saul does and do the opposite. We read this in verse 6, 5 and 6. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. So Saul, by the way, is so terrified, this word means he was literally shaking physically. And then he inquired of God. You might think, well, that's good. He did the right thing. He prayed. And uh, prayer is a good response. Uh, Fear prompts him to talk to God. But I want you to hold on to that thought because there's a problem with this prayer. Uh, it's not obvious at first, but I'm, uh, I will point that out to you in a few minutes, the problem with this prayer. But under pressure, Saul prays and God doesn't answer. God doesn't respond. Uh, God doesn't respond in any of these three ways that Saul mentions. Not by dreams. There's no vision at night that comes from God. And and he doesn't get guidance from the Urim. You say, well, what is that? Well, the Urim and the Thummim are mentioned several times in the Old Testament. Uh, We don't know exactly what they are. They're part of the high priest's outfit uh, that's described for us and tucked inside the breast. Uh, described in Exodus 28.30 and Leviticus 8.8 and Deuteronomy 33.8. We don't know what they are, but we know that it has something to do with providing guidance from God, uh, making decisions. And uh, there's some thought that the Urim might have been a stone that you rolled like a dice or flipped like a coin to give a yes or no answer, and that's, I think, a highly probable thing. But the the Urim wasn't working for Saul. Uh, And, well, let me tell you, why I think it wasn't working. He shouldn't have it in the first place. It's for the high priest. And we learned back in chapter 22 that uh, Saul got ticked off at the, the priests who lived in Nob. That's a city of priests. And he went there and killed them all, had them all killed. And so he got this Urim by actually killing the priests. So it shouldn't be any wonder, if it shouldn't be surprised that this holy object to help determine God's will doesn't work when you murder somebody to get it. So uh, it wasn't coming by dreams, it wasn't coming by Urim, it wasn't coming by the prophets. He wasn't getting an answer from the prophet. Of course, Samuel's dead, and, and there weren't any other prophets giving him guidance. And so there's just silence from God. How can that be? There's a crisis going on. How can it be that God doesn't give direction when, when asked? Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you prayed for your loved one to be healed. Sitting by her bedside, you pleaded with God. You said, she's too young. I I need her. Don't let this happen. Make her well. And she died. Or you begged God that your marriage would stay together. You said, don't let him leave me. Bring him back. Bring him to his senses. But it ended in divorce. Or or maybe you pleaded with God in in a financial crisis and said, give me an answer, give me a better job, Uh, provide for me, and and things got worse. Under pressure, you called and got nothing. Now here's the danger of of that situation. That desperation can push you into the arms of another quote-unquote deliverer. You don't hear from God, and and so you turn to, to... other things, in your despair, you, you look for help in the worst places. Stress may be the reason you give for turning away from God, making your own decisions, uh, breaking God's law, violating His will. And that's what Saul did. As king, 
He had rightly outlawed the practice of communicating with the dead and consulting with spirit mediums, but now he's desperate. He's desperate. So he says this, verse 7, he said to his attendants, find me a woman who's a medium so I may go and inquire of her. Well, there's one in Endor, they said. So Saul's approach was, if God won't answer me, I'm going to find someone who will. And so Saul puts on a disguise and uh, goes at night to visit this medium. By the way, if you have to put on a disguise and go out at night, you're probably not doing something you should be doing. That's what Saul's doing. He says to her, bring up the spirit that I tell you to. Uh, He's asking her to talk to the dead. And she says, well, the king has made this illegal. You're trying to trap me? You're trying to get me killed? So Saul says, verse 10, he swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Now, when he sweared an oath in God's name, which is serious business, this, by the way, is the last time in his life that Saul speaks the name of the Lord. Saul convinces this woman to call up Samuel, the dead prophet, and it happens. Her trance works better than she anticipated, and a spirit shows up in the form of an old man in a robe. Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Now we won't speculate as to how she managed to connect with the spirit world or even if this is actually Samuel, the dead prophet, but clearly she didn't expect this either. This was unusual for her because she cried out with a loud voice. And that's a phrase that is connected with an emotional outburst of fear. It's a cry of dismay. And at that same moment, She sees this spirit. She is able to penetrate the disguise of Saul. Uh, Her trance allows her to identify Saul. So again, though, Saul convinces her to keep that seance going. And when Samuel asks Saul, why have you disturbed me? Saul says this, verse 15, I am in great distress. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God's turned away from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams, so I have called on you to tell me what to do. So this defines the pressure that has driven Saul to such desperation that he disobeys God and communicates with the dead. And do you notice when he tells the prophet what he's tried and God hasn't answered, he leaves out the Urim thing. Why? Well, because he shouldn't have that in the first place. He killed to get it. So he leaves that out, but God's not speaking to him. Uh, So he's appealing to Samuel, and Samuel, this spirit, does not give Saul the answers he seeks. Instead, he says this, verse 16, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands because you did not obey the Lord. So Saul's repeated failure to carry out the Lord's commands costs him. And a short time later... Saul will take his own life. He falls on his own sword. So what happened? When God did not give the answer he wanted, Saul took matters into his own hands. He allowed pressure to push him farther down the road of disobedience and then to self-destruction. So how do we keep pressure from being self-destructive? There's a small detail that I believe is significant and I don't want you to miss it. Okay, so, so let me try and point it out to you. Hope you can follow me on this. Uh, we see in uh, verse 6 that Saul inquired of the Lord. The Hebrew word is sha'al. 
It means to ask, to simply ask. It's a word that can be used of prayer. It's a good word. Nothing wrong with the word sha'al. But then in verse 7, it says, Saul inquired of the medium. And this is, the, the Hebrew word is different. It's darash, which means to seek with care, to search diligently for an answer. It's a word that's also used of prayer, also a good word, nothing wrong with this. Now what makes me pay attention is that when 1 Chronicles chapter 10 repeats this same scenario in Saul's life and talks about his tragic end, it says this about Saul. He did not inquire of the Lord. That's what's wrong. He didn't inquire of the Lord. And it uses the word darash. He did not seek with care. He did not search diligently in prayer before the Lord. That highlights the difference. Uh, let me put it this way. That Saul was willing to do whatever the medium wanted, but not whatever God wanted. So he was desperately seeking an answer from this medium, but not from God. And that was the difference. Saul's prayer to God was insincere and dishonest. It was as if he didn't even pray. And the, the problem was that Saul asks for God's help without getting real with God and honest with God about his sin. Jealousy, anger, bitterness, scheming, fear had long been part of his life and it corroded his soul. And Saul refused to recognize and admit this. Saul overlooked the rebellion in his own heart and still expected to hear from God. Uh, let me put it in these terms. That, that if... That doesn't want to work now. Ah. If you refuse to be honest with God... Don't expect an answer. Uh, um, you say, how did I say this? Well, there are many verses. What, Psalm 66, 8, if I hold on to sin in my heart, God won't hear. Isaiah 59, 2, our sins hide God's face so he will not hear. Um, God is silent when you don't come clean about your sin or when you refuse to do what he's already told you to do. Uh, what came to my mind is some years ago, a young couple came to, to see me. They, they stopped me actually in the hallway and said, hey, we, we want some spiritual direction about a big decision that we got to make. I, I didn't know this couple. They were, I guess, attenders at the church, but I, I didn't know them very well at all. And uh, I said, well, what's the decision? Well, well we, we are, are thinking about buying our first house together, and we, we need to have guidance. So will you help guide us? Well, in the course of our discussion, I, I found out they weren't married. And they're thinking of, the, and they weren't married because they weren't ready to make such a big commitment. And sometimes I feel like I'm on candid camera or something, that people are just joking me. And I said, well, you mean you, you think you're ready to buy a house together, but you're not ready to be married. And, and, and I said, so here, among many other things I said, here's what I said. Why would God give you any direction about buying a house when you're refusing to follow the directions he's already given you? You're not living life the way God has told you to live life. So why would he tell you anything else? Or maybe you pray daily about the stress you face at work. You have heavy demands. There's concerns about whether you'll keep your job or if the business will survive. And it drives you to God. Say, God, what help direct me. That's good. But by the way, you also harbor some real bitterness against someone in your family. I mean, they did something inexcusable as far as you're concerned. Now, what do those two things have to do with each other? Well, I tell you, it has an impact on your prayer life. If you're not dealing with that relationship the way you need to deal with it, then 
I'm not sure you can expect God to be answering your desperate prayer. Or maybe your desperation is to have children, and you ask for God's wisdom about how far to go with fertility treatments or reproductive technology, or you pray about adoption. Should it be a child from Ethiopia or China or Haiti? Uh, And and, uh, frankly, Mother's Day makes you pretty sad. Dedications are painful. Uh, And there's one couple in particular that you know, they're part of your class or your group, and they, you know, you just, you make you feel jealous make you feel critical. You think, they don't deserve to be so blessed. And you resent their fertility. And at the same time, you're pleading with God to increase your family. Maybe it doesn't cross your mind that that attitude is sinful and impacts your prayer life. When we don't own up to our failings, when we're not broken over our sin, God won't listen. Uh, We can't expect God's help in crisis without getting real with God. I mean, that's how salvation begins. That that we must get real with God about our sin. We must admit we are sinful and we need a Savior. Do you belong to Jesus? That, That means, have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? The Bible says you are saved. Then if you've admitted your need of a Savior and turned to Jesus as the only Savior, you are saved. The penalty of your sin has been paid for by the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Christ. And so you're no longer trusting in your own goodness, your good works to get you anywhere, but your trust is in Christ alone as your Redeemer. So you have a new identity, you have a new life, a new purpose, a new destiny. You've been saved by grace, given what you don't deserve. So if you have put your trust in Christ, if you are truly a Christian saved by the one and only Savior, then don't live life as if you have not been saved. Don't live life as if you are your own Redeemer and Savior. Uh, Don't live as if you can make it on your own. Pressure should drive you to turn from sin and depend on Christ alone. And under stress, which we're all under some form of stress one way or another, under stress you may be praying But unless that prayer is humble, unless that prayer is repentant and submissive, unless you desperately seek God, it can be as if you didn't pray at all. So what should I do? If I get real with God, if I'm open and honest about my sin, can I expect relief from pressure? Well, here's what you and I need to understand. If you're a follower of Jesus, You must realize that God is at work in your life, and everything that happens, everything that happens is about shaping you to become more like Jesus. There's a reason, even for the pressure in your life, and knowing that, you can face that pressure without panic, without paralysis, without self-destructing. And here's the reality. Pressure's purpose is to drive you to rely on God alone. That's the purpose. And we know that from what... Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, he says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's the purpose of pressure. So I want to share with you one of the more difficult times in my life, just some of that time. It was about 1998 that it started, and I was facing some huge challenges I was writing and defending my doctoral thesis. 
Uh, two pastors on my staff uh, both left to take senior pastor positions in other states, which was good for them. I had to fire the custodian and forcibly remove him from the building with the help of a very large deacon. My worship pastor, who was a dear friend, died of cancer. The office administrator moved to another state. The secretary retired. So at that time, I was on four search committees. I was leading four search committees. I was shouldering much of the responsibility for those open positions. And so there were weeks when I typed the church bulletin, led the worship service, set up tables and chairs for meetings, ran sound for the praise team, praise band rehearsal, taught the youth group, visited the sick, taught children's club, and did my own job as best I could. During that time, I led the church into a $6 million building program, which involved an enormous number of meetings. Through the 18 months of construction, we held services and programs and offices in many different locations. The project meant that the church-owned house that I lived in with my family had to be torn down. And so during this time, I also had to buy my first home. And during that time, the contracted deadline for my first book was due from the publisher. The, the, the Draft one was due, under contract, and I got called to jury duty and was impaneled and was the foreman. Those are the highlights that I can share with you. And frankly, I thought I was handling it all just great. I mean, I got my doctorate, I finished my book, I hired new staff, raised money for the new building, bought the house, renovated it, moved in. But I was fooling myself. During a worship service in December of 1999, like right in the middle of the service, I had a grand mal seizure. People still talk about that one. And after getting out of the hospital, I spent Christmas and New Year's in bed, but I still did not recognize that like the step stool, I had exceeded my weight limit and crumpled under the excess load. And so after a brief recovery, nothing changed in my life. Nothing. About a year later, I was forced to face the truth. That I was not being honest with God. That while my trust was in Jesus to save my soul, I was living as if I was the Savior. I was relying on myself. And it was killing me. So I had to come to the place where I accepted the reality of Jesus' words that apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't leave any loopholes in that one. Apart from me, you can't do anything at all. And so let me assure you that I do not have what it takes. That would not make the greatest inspirational speech you've ever heard, would it? Not too many t-shirts with that on it. I do not have what it takes. Whatever you list, I'm not enough to comfort those who grieve. I'm not enough to counsel those who struggle, to correct those who go astray. I don't have the strength to be what everyone needs me to be. I'm not smart enough. I'm not brave enough. I'm not skilled enough to solve all the problems that I face. I don't have what it takes to be a good husband and father most days. But I hold on to the God who does. And that's the difference. Do I still feel pressure? Absolutely. Are there times I depend solely in my own power and wisdom? Definitely. 
Am I still learning what it means to rely on God alone? Unquestionably. Daily, I have to be reminded to do what God gives me the strength to do and to leave the results with Him. And on this Mother's Day, mixed with the joy of motherhood, is a lot of stress and pressure and expectation. And moms, you can't do it all. Even though others might expect it. And what God wants from you today is to admit that and rely on Him alone. Unless you come to that realization, pressure can stunt your relationships, harm your health, hinder your spiritual life, and erode your satisfaction in Christ. Let me remind you that there's a reason for the stress and the pressure you are facing right now. And as it pushes and pulls and stretches and strains and crumples and crushes you, God is calling you to get real and hold on to Him. Followers of Jesus, pressure happens not so that we can rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And that God who breathes life into death, dead bodies is the God you can trust to see you through. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your promises. Thank you for the reality that you recognize is true in our lives, that there is pressure and stress that weighs down on us. But Lord, by your grace and mercy, may we realize that the point of that is to drive us to you and not into the arms of another deliverer, not into our own self-sufficiency, but that we might rely on you, the God who raises the dead. We give you thanks and praise in the name of our Savior, living Savior, Jesus. Amen.